Good morning, everyone. Morning. Happy Lord's Day. Yes. Isn't it a relief to get to Sunday? <clears throat> we are going to um, today continue, just for the sake of anybody listening to the recording, this is the second part of Module 4, Session 7, which uh, is theoretically one session on the doctrines of regeneration and perseverance. We didn't make it to the perseverance part last time. We didn't uh, persevere toward perseverance, which I'm, I'm glad for. I'm just looking at my notes, and we have some really rich things to do this morning. Uh, they've been telling me that the slides are going in and out, so I will speak to you as if they're not working, if you're taking notes, um, because basically, if you want to take notes today, all you need to do is write down um, somewhere in the vicinity of 30 scripture references I'm going to give you. Okay, so that's actually easy. Just, just write those down if you want to. So we're going to look at the doctrine of perseverance. But we will uh, we'll pray first and ask the Lord's blessing on our whole day. Our Father, uh, we are so thankful for this day. This is the day that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. It is the Lord's day. It belongs to you. And while we're not under a Sabbath law, Lord, we do recognize and acknowledge the wisdom of setting aside a day to worship you and absolutely every day ought to be a day of giving you glory every day ought to be a day of giving you worship but how wondrous it is lord when we punctuate our lives every single week by a day devoted to you and lord we're particularly blessed today to have a Lord's Day in which we are able to not only share in the Lord's table together later this morning, but to participate together, Lord, in uh, the ordinance of baptism tonight. And we're just, I, I'm always just extra thankful, Lord, to you when we get to do both of those all in one day. And so, Lord, we pray that we would be blessed by your word this morning as we look at the doctrine of perseverance and we pray, Lord, that it would give us great confidence in your work of salvation. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So today is uh, something we're going to do is dealing with the doctrine of perseverance. And, and I think the best way to approach this is, um, let's see, we're, oh, well, we're back. Um, we'll get to, there we go, doctrine of perseverance. The best way to approach this is just to have uh, I, I want to overwhelm you with Scripture. I guess I'll put it that way. So um, I'm just going to be reading a lot of Scripture to you. That's, uh, I think the best sermons ever are the ones that you just hear the Bible explained. But here's the issue in the doctrine of perseverance. When dealing with the doctrine of perseverance, what we're addressing is the issue of whether or not a true Christian can ever fall away from the faith. Can a true believer become a true unbeliever or is the work of God such in their lives that true believers will persevere to the end now I want to go backwards on the slides while they're still working to show you something the title of this lecture do you think they're oh it's not up there I can only see it that's that's hilarious okay well uh, whoever's listening to this recording sorry about that okay the title of this lecture is the doctrines of regeneration and perseverance. Why do we put those two together? Because uh, by putting those together and studying regeneration first, if you understand regeneration, 
then any doctrine that says, but you can fall away from the faith makes no sense. Regeneration really teaches us basically everything we need to know about the doctrine of perseverance um, because persevering in the faith is a foregone conclusion then, according to the doctrine of regeneration. But we want to be as precise as the Bible is, and so we'll separate it out. Can a Christian lose his salvation? Can you become, according to the doctrine of regeneration, can you become unregenerate? Can you go back and forth? Um, There are some traditional historical views of this, and this is not something you have to take notes on. Um, The Roman Catholic view says that salvation can be forfeited by mortal sin. Um, The way they define mortal sin is uh, sins of such a nature that even purgatory won't help you. And again, just in case you're listening, purgatory does not exist. That's a Roman uh, Catholic uh, way to help people who know that they have lived a completely unrighteous life to still give them some hope. Why do they want to give people hope? Because they keep giving to the church. Roman Catholic Church is the richest religion in the world um, because they use legalism to get people to give. Uh, That's why you drive by a a Roman Catholic building. I'm hesitant to call it a church. A Roman Catholic building, you go, how come they have such nice stonework and we just bought this metal thing that we're... It's because they scare people to death And they especially scare them with mortal sin. Mortal sin is unforgivable. It is, uh, you're you're unredeemable. And so uh, they they scare people to death with that and use that to their uh, their own ends. Do you know another religion on earth that is literally has its own nation? You know that the Vatican is considered a nation with its own army. That's crazy. So the Roman Catholic view is that, and remember we talked about this with regeneration, that you're, you're working your way towards salvation. You're, you're trying to be justified. You're, you're going to eternal Las Vegas and you're rolling the dice that uh, at the end of your life you did enough and that maybe you'll be justified. If you didn't quite do enough, you go to purgatory um, for a while and then eventually you go to heaven. That's the Roman Catholic view. So, To even say salvation can be forfeited by mortal sin, in the Roman Catholic view, they're contradicting themselves because according to their view, you never had salvation to begin with. So that's just, that's a crazy system. It is so harmful. It is so hurtful. Um, It it is the the height of deception. Then there's the uh, Arminian view, most Arminians, that salvation can be lost by what they would call walking after the flesh. That... If you sin long enough, hard enough, and rebelliously enough, then at some point you lose your salvation. Now, what's the obvious question we have? Where is that point? Right? And I've told you this before. Um, my formerly Arminian dad, uh, who is now a Calvinist because he's in heaven, <clears throat> I asked him that question. I still remember. I was 13 years old. And I asked him that question, and it, his answer is burned so hard into my memory that I, could, I can picture the, the, the very room, I can picture the table we were sitting at, I can picture the fact that it was about this wide, it was a 36-inch table, and it had an orange tablecloth on it, and it was round, and it had salt and pepper shakers in the middle. The reason I can picture that is because I asked him the question, how do you know if you're still saved, if you, if you lose your salvation? I wanted to know where that point is. And he took the salt shaker 
And he said, well, it's kind of like this round table here. That as you move closer toward more and more sin and you move closer to the edge, eventually you fall off. And I said, I get that. Where is that point that you eventually fall off? And he didn't have an answer because it's not a biblical concept. And so, of course, I spent my whole childhood terrified of losing my salvation because uh, that was how he was raised. That's how his parents were raised and so forth. Um, I praise the Lord. He became a Calvinist before the end of his life, not just because he went to heaven, but uh, he no longer could deny the fact that God chose Abraham, God chose Isaac, God chose Jacob, and that God is the one who does the choosing. So that's a scary system. Have you ever seen an Armenian hymnal? I used to own a bunch of them. And there, there's, there's hymns in there like, uh, help me, Lord, not to fall. Help me not to fail. Um, I'll do anything I can. Everything salvation entails. And these hymns are depressing. It's not praise to the Lord. It's help me, God, to do enough. That's not a hymn. That's a desperate cry of, of horror. I love our hymnal because it sings praise to God and His work in salvation. So that's the Arminian view. Now, <clears throat> there are godly, godly, wonderful Arminian believers. And if you have a conversation with one, you can ask, ask them. Because I asked my dad this later in life. Dad, do you genuinely believe that you can lose your salvation? And he said, no. Well, why not? Because he was following after the Lord and he loved Christ and he couldn't even picture that. That made no sense to him. And so there are wonderful Arminians, but um, if you press them on the issue, no, I, I think maybe other people can lose their salvation, but probably not me. Uh, which can either be an honest evaluation of your life or it can be a position of pride, can it? So it has all kinds of problems to it. Then there is uh, the, the Lutheran view that elect believers persevere while non-elect believers fall away. Non-elect believer is like uh, grape nuts. It's not either one, right? It, it makes no sense. So that's creating a whole category. A non-elect believer is, doesn't, is in the category that exists. So we'll leave that one alone. And then you have the Reformed view. And this makes sense. God preserves true Christians such that they persevere to the end. Does that make sense? Of course it does. Because who, who, who is now responsible? God is. God preserves true Christians so that they persevere to the end. Salvation is viewed from a monergistic perspective. That's, remember, that's a word that means uh, a singular work, one work, a work of one Salvation from beginning to end is understood as the work of God. That what God begins, he also finishes. Now, what is the, what is the argument that's always made against this view? Uh, against the, what the Baptists would call the once saved, always saved view, which is a whole other uh, can of worms. What's the argument? Well, the argument usually made against this is, well, that just means that you believe that you can become a Christian and you can just keep sinning and doing whatever you want because you're not losing your salvation. So you can just be a complete rebel and you're just free. You can go to Vegas and you can gamble your family's money away. You can be sexually immoral. You can go through 10 wives. You can do anything you want. That's what that view says. 
There's no such thing as a genuine believer who wants to do any of those things. That person does not exist. What do you call somebody who says, I'm a Christian, but lives like the world anyway? We call them a non-Christian. Never saved in the first place. You, you can't unregenerate a regenerate person. So we would hold to the Reformed view. And I'd like to read you a great, um, a great quote from Milton Erickson in his theology. He says, quote, Perseverance means that God will enable the believer to remain in the faith through the remainder of his or her life. It also means that the believer needs to demonstrate salvation through becoming more like Christ. The true believer will not apostatize. So what I want to do the rest of our time here is there is a kind of a, a, a two-sided coin to this because and Erickson's uh, definition here tells us those two sides. Perseverance means that God will enable the believer to remain in the faith. So which one is it, God or the believer? Yes, all of the above. But we would put God at the top of that list that uh, he is the one that enables us to persevere. So some have called this the doctrine of the preservation of the faith. Others call it the doctrine of the perseverance of the faith. We can put those two together. So this is the part where I just want to give you a big list. And I guess our screen isn't working there. So I'm going to give you a list of something like 18 scriptures, 19, to talk about this subject, God's initiative in in the perseverance of our faith. God's initiative. Here we go. Psalm 37, 24. Psalm 37, 24. When he falls, he shall not be hurled headlong because the Lord is the one who holds his hand. What is that a picture of? That's a picture of a believer falling and yet your hand is held. That's a beautiful picture. Four verses later or so, Psalm 37, 28. For the Lord loves justice and does not forsake his godly ones. They are preserved forever. They are preserved forever. Jeremiah 32, 40. And this is, this is speaking of the coming new covenant. I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from them to do them good. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts so that they will not turn away from me. Do you catch that? God puts the fear of God in our hearts so that we don't turn away from him. In the New Covenant era, Jesus taught that believers in Him immediately possess eternal life. I'm going to give you a short list of scriptures about Jesus saying that believers in Him immediately possess eternal life. It's not something future. You have eternal life right now. Do you, have you thought about that? Eternal life is not coming. And yes, there's this little death thing we've got to deal with. But that's, that's not a big deal. To be absent from the body is to be at home with the Lord. Our death is the equivalent of a sneeze. It's just, oh, I'm home. So here's a list. Believers immediately possess eternal life. John 3, 15 and 16. John 3, 36. John 4, 14. This is all in the Gospel of John. John 5, 24. John 6, 40. John 6, 47, and then one in 1 John 5, 1 John 5, 11 through 13. These things we write to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. So believers possess eternal life. It's not a hoped for conclusion. Here's a, a 
this is not a verse, but it's a, it's a true concept. If eternal life could be forfeited or lost, then why does the Bible call it eternal? It should call it something else. John 3.18. John 3.18 tells us that true believers never come into judgment. What, why would it make sense to us that true believers never come into judgment? Because Christ took our judgment. He did, and, and how many of your sins had you committed when Jesus said it is finished? Zero. So the common belief, and this is a Christian myth, is that somehow when you uh, quote unquote get saved, at that moment, God forgives you of all the sins you've ever committed up to that point. What happens after that is a roll of the dice. That's not what Jesus said. Jesus said, if you believe in me, you have eternal life. You possess it. It is your possession. True believers will never come into judgment. John 6, 39 and 40. I gave you one of these references already, but John 6, 39 and 40. This is Jesus speaking. And this is the will of him who sent me, that of all he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. That alone, that's John 6, 39. That, that statement alone we could talk about for an hour, but let me just give you a minute on this. First of all, this is the will of him who sent me. Jesus' focus is on the will of God. The will of God is always done. Secondly, that of all he has given me, what does that tell us? There is a list of people that God, has, the Father, has given to Jesus. There is a list. We call that the doctrine of election. You can deny it all you want. That's what Jesus said. There's a list of people. Of all that he has given me, I lose nothing. It's a Greek word that means el zippo. Nothing. Not one. And what's the conclusion? But raise it up on the last day. If we could simplify this, every person on, that, that God has ordained to be elect will be raised up in resurrection bodies someday. What kind of savior would we have if he could save only 99.99% of the people that God gave him? That, now we're rolling the dice again, right? And then moving on, John 6, 40. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him may have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. How are you going to be raised from the dead? Jesus just said he's going to do it. Uh, do you realize that uh, on the day of resurrection, which is described in great detail in 1 Corinthians 15 and 1, Corinthians, uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, that the most exciting place on earth to be will be all the graveyards everywhere? Those places are going to be a mess. And they're going to be emptied for the most part. Pretty neat stuff. How about this one? John 10, 27 through 29. Again, this is Jesus speaking. John 10, 27 and following. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give present tense eternal life to them and they shall never perish and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. Oh, okay. Now when you talk about losing salvation, now you're denigrating Christ. You're saying that your sin or your temptation could pry the fingers of Christ himself open to let you out. And in case he wasn't clear, my father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. You know what that's a picture of? You in the hand of Christ and the hand of Christ in the hand of God the father. You're going to get out of that because you rebelled? I don't think so. Now your reward is going to be effected. Um, 
Jesus might open his hand long enough to spank you spiritually, but he's not letting you out. And, and the reason for that maybe is different than what we've thought about. The reason is not because of us. The reason is because of him, because it gives God no glory to let some of his elect uh, fall. It gives him all glory that he can ordain from before the foundation of the world that certain people will be saved and make it to the end with every single one of them. That's a God that we worship. How about this one? John 17, 6 through 19. It's a long passage, but that's the the high priestly prayer of Jesus. And he intercedes for believers. He prays that everyone that is his would see his glory and be with him where he is. That's a great prayer. I'm going to have to go a tad faster because we won't make it through all these. Hebrews 7, 24 and 25. Hebrews 7, 24 and 25. But he, that's Christ on the other hand, because he abides forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Hence also he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. What's another reason you won't lose your salvation? Because the Lord Jesus Christ at this very moment is interceding for you. He is praying for you. Isn't that cool? The Holy Spirit prays for you. Romans 8 and Hebrews 7, Jesus is praying for you. Are you telling me that you can outdo the prayers of Christ and the prayers of the Holy Spirit for you? You can't. And that, that's a, a doctrinal point. The high priesthood of Jesus Christ is not a temporary office. It's one he holds forever. Therefore, he holds you forever. Romans 8, 29 and 30. You're probably most familiar with these. Romans 8, 29 and 30. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And whom he predestined, these he also called. And whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he hopefully will glorify. It's not what it says. Past tense. These he also glorified. Your coming glory is so certain that the Bible speaks of it as if it's already happened. The book of Colossians says you've been seated in the he- past tense in the heavenly places with Christ. This is what's called in Romans 8, 29 and 30. Theologians call this the golden chain of salvation. And they all the verbs here signify past action. You were foreknown you were predestined you were called you were justified and you were glorified it's already done here's another set we're on number 12 out of 19 on uh, god's initiative nothing in heaven or earth can separate believers from christ's love that's romans 8 39 35 through 39 is that worth reading that is absolutely worth reading so I will read this text and then make a statement. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Yeah, but if I'm rebellious long enough, I might be able to undo all of that. That's ridiculous. That's silly. 
Nothing in heaven or earth can separate believers from Christ's love, including your idiocy, by the way. Including you. Philippians 1.6 For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Years ago, I've mentioned this before, uh, Billy Graham wrote a book on suicide. And it was a great disappointment. Ironically, he's writing a theological book and Billy Graham always said, I'm not a theologian, I'm a preacher, which is a contradiction in terms. That's a whole other issue. But the book on suicide basically said, because suicide is such a horrible sin and it'll be your last act on this earth, it means you lose your salvation. Which is ironic because he's preached security of salvation many at many other times. Is your last act on this earth going to be an act of righteousness? I don't know. It might be. Probably not. As you're flying off a cliff in your car, are you going to be saying, praise God from whom? I think you'll be saying, no, you know. And you arrive in heaven and the angels say, well, that was disappointing, but welcome home. Do you want your salvation dependent on the last thing you do? No. I want my salvation dependent on the last thing Jesus did, which is to die on the cross and be raised from the dead and intercede for my, on my behalf right now. And what is, what is the prayer of Jesus for you going to be? Father, in about five minutes, this beloved brother is going to go home. Uh, there's a bridge that's out he's not aware of, and this has been your plan from all along. Keep him safe for the next four minutes and 55 seconds. Jesus Christ will keep praying for you until you're home. I love that. That's comforting to me. How about this one? 2 Corinthians 1.21 Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us is God. God established you in Christ. That's what he did. 1 Corinthians 1.8 that God shall also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is a great word, confirm you to the end. What that means is that judicially, you have been made righteous before God. You, you are sealed as one who is viewed as completely righteous. Now, there's a difference here. Do you possess imputed righteousness, credited righteousness? Do you possess the righteousness of Christ that's credited to you? yes. Are you as righteous as Christ yet? No. That's why the imputation of righteousness is so important. But what this says in 1 Corinthians 1.8 is that he shall confirm you to the end. You are viewed as blameless today. There will be a time when you are actually confirmed as actually blameless. That's a pretty amazing thought. How about this one? It speaks of the Holy Spirit's presence in the life of the believer as a deposit or a guarantee. A couple of good verses on the Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians 1.22 That God sealed us also and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. When will you stop being indwelt by the Holy Spirit? Never. The Holy Spirit was given as a pledge. God is with you. Jesus said this is His Spirit. God is with you and... God can't be separated from God. If you lose your salvation, God is separating from himself. And that's impossible. Ephesians 1.14 may be more familiar to you. That the Spirit is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. 
I just have a few more on God's uh, initiative, but are you seeing that from a thousand different angles, God is keeping you safe and helping you persevere? It's not like just one little proof text and you go, I'm hanging my whole eternity on this one verse. It's everywhere. 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again. First of all, right there, who initiated salvation? God did. According to His mercy, He caused us to be born again. And people say, well, I want, but I want free will. Why? When you got, anybody here feel like you were coerced into salvation? I don't, I've never heard anybody like that. Now, God will corner you and destroy your life until you say, yes, I want to be saved. Is that coercion? No, that's grace. That's kindness. But we keep going in 1 Peter 1, 4. This is stunning. To obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Let me stop right there for a minute. Imperishable. What does that mean? It means your salvation won't go bad from the inside out. That you won't rot. That your own sin won't destroy you. Undefiled means it won't go bad from the outside. That no human being can tempt you. No, no horrible thing that other people do. You can't be misled. Um, maybe, maybe slightly here and there, but you can't be misled all the way to the point of losing your salvation. That's impossible. So your salvation is imperishable. It won't go bad from the inside. It's undefiled. It won't go bad from the outside. And it will not fade away. Why won't it fade away? Because it's reserved in heaven for you. Reserved. It's the exact same word that we would use to speak of a, of a hotel reservation. We live in a sinful world and theoretically, hotel reservations always uh, work. Uh, I've had lots of experiences of going to hotels and they don't even know I exist. Like, I called you like 11 times. You have my credit card number. How do you have my credit card? But I don't have a reservation. It doesn't work that way in heaven. Once your reservation's there, it's forever. If you got saved when you were six years old, reservation is there. And then verse 5 of 1 Peter 1, you are protected by the power of God. Oh, well, that makes it easy. We could have started right there and saved the last 25 minutes. You're protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So this passage here, 1 Peter 3, 1, 3 through 5, describes our salvation as something that can't be destroyed. It never fades. Circumstances have nothing to do with it. How about this one? 1 John five eighteen. 1 John 5.18 says, We know that no one who is born of God sins. Now remember, the Apostle John is completely black and white. There, there's no middle ground for him. So when he says no one who is born of God sins, what he, what he means is, is that, judicially speaking, you're seen as somebody who never sins again. And that is true. But he who is born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. God keeps you. Satan can't get you. And one more, Jude 24. And and let me take a little side note here. Sorry, these thoughts come to my brain and I reserve the right to just follow them. Um, As you get closer and closer to the end of the Bible, there are two big things that happen. 
The first one is that there are more and more and more warnings about false teachers, false teaching, false ideologies, false Christs, antichrists. These warnings just accelerate. The other thing that happens is that the assurance of salvation for the true believer accelerates. First John alone, probably at least 30 different places you could look at to, to show the perseverance of the saints. The book of Jude, literally right here, two verses before the last book in the Bible. He says this in Jude 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. And then he gives his final benediction. God keeps you from stumbling to make you stand. Here's the picture. The picture is that as hard as you try to lose your salvation, God has got you by the collar and he will drag you into heaven whether you like it or not. I don't think there's any Christian who gets dragged to heaven, but that's the picture. That's a great picture. Now, that's God's initiative. Do Christians have a role? Absolutely. Well, that's not working anyway, so I'll just go through this list. And I'm going to do this, this one faster because there's way more emphasis on God's initiative and perseverance than there is on, on the Christians. But there, there is a, a role that we have. Perseverance is ultimately the work of God, but we have a role to play as well. Matthew 10, 22. You will be hated by all on account of my name, but it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. We do have a call to persevere. 1 Corinthians 10, 12. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Is that speaking to a Christian? No, he says, let him who thinks he stands. That's a warning to the false believer in the church. 1 Corinthians 16, 13. Be on the alert. Stand firm in the faith. A true believer doesn't suddenly start doubting the gospel. You stand firm in the faith. You were called to do that. 2 Corinthians 1.24 For in your faith you are standing firm. And you might say, well, that, what do you mean by standing firm? You keep on believing what you believe. You keep on believing the truth. It was just a, a couple of years ago that uh, a very popular Christian author, I still have some of his books on my shelf because they're really useful. Anybody know who Joshua Harris is? He's written some great books. He was a pastor for years and years. And Joshua, goes, Joshua Harris goes public saying, in any biblical definition, I am not a Christian. I have renounced the faith. And he goes off and he starts supporting the LBGTQ agenda and all kinds, he just completely went off the rails. He was correct in saying this, I have never been a Christian. And he was so deceived that he thought he was a Christian, but he came out and said, I'm not. And he decided that social justice was more important than the gospel. And so what do you do with that? You remember that there is a Christian's role in perseverance. The whole book of Hebrews basically has the theme of, uh, of preaching. You are close, some of you. You've been around the Word of God. You've been around the people of God. You've been around the Spirit of God. You've been around the miracles of God in the, in the first century church. You've been around all the things of God. You just are not of God. And so three times in the book of Hebrews, today if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. Today if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. Today if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. 
That's why I feel great freedom to preach to unbelievers in the church because Jesus promised that they're here. I don't know who they are. I, I've said this before. I wish everybody had a red and a green button. That'd make things so much easier. You know, a, a re- oh, red light. Look, three unbelievers in the back. I'll preach right to you. I don't know. But I do know this. Matthew 7 is very clear that unbelievers moments before being thrown into the lake of fire will say, Lord, Lord, did we not do things in your name? And they act like Christians for the moment. Philippians 2, 12 and 13. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence only, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. What does that mean? It doesn't mean earn your salvation. It means act like you're saved and obey the Lord. Why is obedience so important to us as believers? One of the biggest reasons is that it gives us assurance. When people come to my office for counseling and their lives don't look very Christian, but they say, but I'm trusting the Lord. Well, your life doesn't look like it. Well, can you give me assurance of salvation? No, your life needs to give you assurance. I can't do that for you. If your life looks like an unbeliever, then you're, you're, you might be one. And I have no problem saying that. I think it's the most loving thing I can say is just to say, you know, look, I don't know, but I don't think you're a Christian. I'd rather them be in heaven with me going, told you I'd make it great. Praise the Lord. Rather that than, Lord, Lord, did we not? 2 Timothy 2, 12 and 13, if we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we endure, if we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. 2 Timothy 2, 4, or 4, 7 rather. 2 Timothy 4, 7, the Apostle Paul, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the what? The faith. What a great thing at the end of your life to be able to say, I believe the gospel more now than I ever have in my life. Hebrews 10, 36, for you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. In Revelation 2, 10, This is to the church at Smyrna, the suffering church. He says, do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison that you may be tested and you will have tribulation 10 days. Be faithful until death and I will give you the crown of life. Anybody grow up in a tradition where they use the phrase backsliding? I did. Like everybody I ever knew backslid. And I grew up in a tradition where you had an altar call at the end. And it was to two different groups. If you've never known Jesus Christ as your Savior for the very first time, we'd like for you to come forward and pray because praying that prayer is going to save you, and, which is not true. The second group, if you have fallen away from the faith, if you have backslidden, if you are out of the faith now because your salt shaker went to the edge of the table and fell off, then you come forward. So what do you do with the believer who professes Christ but for a season he seems to just be acting like an unbeliever? What do you do with that? Well, we we would know that that's a huge debate, first of all. When somebody comes to me as a pastor and says, can you provide assurance of my salvation? That's usually code for, here are all the sins I would like to hang on to and not really deal with, but I need somebody to just confirm that I'm still okay. And I never do that. I can't give you assurance. You can't give each other assurance. Assurance comes from watching what? It comes from watching your life. 
It comes from enduring. But we would point out a lot of the heroic characters in the Old Testament had major failings at some points in their lives. But remember also, they were not indwelt by the Holy Spirit. They, had, they didn't have the power that we have. David, he is an adulterer, he's a murderer, and he tries to cover them both up. But what did he do when confronted by a prophet of God? He melted in repentance. Solomon, we've been talking about him every Sunday night. He married foreign women who ultimately led him away from God. We've talked about his, the love of his life. We've named her Shulamith from, from Song of Solomon 6.13 where she really, she's called the Shulamite, but it's a proper name in Hebrew, Shulamith, which is the same as it's the girl version of Solomon. I wonder what she thought when her husband had 700 wives. Then the debate is, well, wait a minute. Solomon wrote some books of our Bible. You're going to tell me that an unbeliever wrote some books of our Bible? I can't go there. So did he fall away from the faith? I don't think so, but he didn't end well. He would be in the category of 1 Corinthians 3 that you will be saved, but as through fire, as if you're escaping the fire with nothing on. Peter, how many times did he deny the Lord? Three times. How many times did Jesus say, feed my sheep, feed my lambs, feed my sheep? Three times. Peter had to repent, and he did. So we we understand that. Some will have major failings, and that might be the end of life for that person. 1 Corinthians 11, Paul tells the believers in the church at Corinth, some of you are dying. God is killing some of you because of your disobedience. It doesn't say that God is taking their salvation. It says that God is, is ending their lives. I fully believe that God ends the lives of disobedient Christians. They just say, we're done on earth. It's time to take you home because you have become useless to the church of Jesus Christ. And so Paul even warns in 1 Corinthians 11, watch out. Some of you are sick. Some of you are dying because you're disobedient. So we we acknowledge that, that there are Christians who are regenerate who just continue to rebel. Do they have... Are they persevering in the faith? From a human standpoint, it doesn't look like it, but from God's standpoint, remember, that's why we read all those verses. God is the one who keeps. But then we also would see very clearly that some fall away from the faith because they were never truly converted. They were never truly converted. Judas, probably our top example. 1 John 2, 19, John says, They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out in order that it might be shown that they are not all of us. 2 John 9, Anyone who goes too far and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. The one who abides in the teaching, he has both the Father and the Son. 2 Peter 2 warns of false prophets. Um, Then you have, remember I said there's this acceleration, this crescendo toward the end of the Bible of warning about false teachers. Jude, only 25 verses in Jude. Jude 4, Jude 8, Jude 10, 11, 12, 13, 16, 17, 18, 19. Uh, Half the letter is about watch out for the false believers in the church. Now, I want to return one last time to the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews has two major passages that offer warnings to us. The most debated passage is Hebrews 6, 4 through 6. And it was just a couple months ago, I preached a whole sermon on Hebrews 6 right here in this hour. 
It says this, For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put Him to open shame. Now we said there's various interpretations of this passage that true believers can permanently fall away from the faith. We're going to deny that one. Um, that the apostasy described here is hypothetical, that this is what would happen if a true believer would fall away, but God doesn't work in hypotheticals. And the third possible interpretation is that the people who are warned in this passage are not truly saved. They know the truth, but they haven't applied it to their lives, and God is warning them, there will be a day when God no longer offers repentance to you, no longer offers forgiveness. And I want to just go back to this real briefly because it, this is a little bit scary. These are people who have been enlightened. They've tasted of the heavenly gift. They've been partakers of the Holy Spirit. They have tasted the good word of God. They have tasted of the powers of the age to come, meaning they've seen God work. That sounds like a Christian, doesn't it? The problem is none of those five phrases are ever used anywhere else in the New Testament to speak of a Christian. This is somebody who's around it around it they've tasted what does it mean to be a partaker of the holy spirit doesn't mean they've been indwelt by the holy spirit means that they've seen the power of the holy spirit working in other people so there's the Hebrews 6 passage it's a great warning it says if you're if you're this close to true faith you need to come all the way to christ then there's this other passage in hebrews 10 beginning of verse 26 For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the spirit of grace. Let me explain Hebrews 10. There will be a day, according to Revelation 20, that all the books of heaven are open. And these books contain every sinful thought, word, deed of every unbeliever that has ever lived. This is, are they actual books, you know, bound in covers? Probably not. But the idea is, is that it's a vast quantity of information. So using our non-working PowerPoint projector here, I want you to imagine something. I want you to imagine that you're the one, as an unbeliever, standing before the Lord. And uh, by the way, I can make the case from Revelation 3 that you'll never actually get to say anything, but, or from uh, Romans 3. But let's say that you do. And you say, but God, I never really understood the truth. On the heavenly PowerPoint... And the heavenly projector always works. God would say, no, you receive knowledge of the truth. Here are all the dates that you heard the gospel. Here are the preachers. Here's the texts that were, that were preached. Here's the moment in that sermon that in your heart you went, and you did it. This time, 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 this time. You heard the gospel precisely 493 times. And in heaven, we determined that you would not get a 494th. That's what Hebrews 10 is saying. 
If you go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, that's why every Sunday we possibly can, when we make a call to salvation, we always want to say, this might be your last shot. doesn't mean it would be the last time you hear the gospel. It means it's the last time God will save you. So that's, that's pretty severe. And so uh, we, we warn the unbeliever, but we take great uh, comfort as a believer, which is why pursuing obedience, pursuing sanctification is such a great comfort. Let me just give one last thought from Milton Erickson. He says this in his theology. The practical implication of our understanding of the doctrine of perseverance is that believers can rest secure in the assurance that their salvation is permanent. Nothing can separate them from the love of God. On the other hand, our understanding of the doctrine of perseverance allows no room for indolence or laxity. Those are big words that just simply mean uh, don't be that person that says, oh, I'm a Christian and so I can do anything I want. That's ultimately the sign of an unbeliever. And so... Uh, that, that's, a, that's a great thing for us. So, uh, so how do you evaluate this in your own life? I mean, that's the biggest question. Am I going to heaven, right? How do you evaluate this? Well, you evaluate your heart. When you're convicted of sin, do you respond? Or do you make excuses? How do you evaluate your behavior? When your spouse says, you know, I would appreciate it if you did X, Y, and Z a little bit more godly fashion. Are you crushed by that? Or do you say, let me give you seven reasons why you're wrong and I'm right. When you hear the word of God, does it thrill your soul? Are you thankful? Do you desire for God to become greater and you to become less? So you're evaluating your own heart. Uh, Just for my own curiosity, how many were at Tim's memorial yesterday? Can I show you the view from my vantage point? I saw, I, I don't know how many people we had here, probably 350 at least. I saw 345 people nodding many in tears, many thankful. And I counted five people. There's two over there, one back there, and two back there. Like this. <laughs> Angry at the gospel. Angry. If we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, I don't know how to present the gospel any more clearly than we did yesterday. Angry. Why would God save that person? Why would they? They don't want to be forgiven. So the doctrine of perseverance, it's ironic to us in that it is both a grave warning and it's also a tremendous comfort. Aren't you glad that when your last thought on this earth is a sinful one, that uh, you'll go to heaven and maybe Jesus will say, nice, but then he'll say, welcome home. So um, I hope the doctrine of perseverance, it's, it's important to you. It's an important part of our faith. We understand regeneration. We understand perseverance. I meant to have time for questions, so I'll, I'll take a couple. So anybody have questions about doctrine of perseverance? Uh, I just told you everything I know, so I don't know what else I can say. But yeah, Andy. Yeah. Well, 
um, I, the basic question is, you know, somebody who seems to be, be going off the rails and now is, he's probably one of those that, that is supporting what they would call uh, legitimate homosexual Christianity, which putting those three words together is like oil, water, and fire all at once. It just doesn't work. Um, Lord, Lord, did we not do mighty works in your name? Didn't we do this? Didn't we do that? Let's add to that. Didn't we have compassion on the lesbians and the gays and homosexuals? Didn't we, didn't we have compassion and, and say that, yes, absolutely, we should pursue social justice? Didn't we do all those compassionate things? And the Lord Jesus will say, depart from me, I never knew you. So um, our faith is described, especially by the Apostle Paul, as a walk in a direction. When your direction is going the wrong way, then he should have no assurance. They went out from us because they were not of us. Um, so your, your faith should be getting stronger and stronger and stronger. The gospel becomes more and more the, the solid core of who you are. And so for him, uh, he's, he's not a believer. It's, you know, and I don't know how useful it is to tell him that, but to warn him, to say, look, true believers don't try to meld the gospel with the world. That's not possible. The gospel is so antithetical to the world, you can't put the two together um, because he's trying to please people. Yeah, Rebecca. With that, you know, when, when you see people in your life that you, you believe are true Christians mm-hmm. and then you see them walk away, I think for, for us that gives us um, trepidation that did they really believe they were Christians? Did they have assurance and then something took them off? Right? So how do we, or, or do you You remember that, uh, and the question is, I, I think if I'm reading between the lines, what if we think we're saved? And, am I able to be deceived? Um, we said this yesterday, uh, Jeremiah 17 says that the heart is deceitful above all things. Your heart lies to you. Um, the person who walks away from the faith was giving themselves evidence. Well, I go to church. I'm a good person. I'm this and that. Uh, I've, I love the Bible. The Bible's a wonderful book and this and that. That's, that's their assurance. Our assurance comes from the Spirit of God. You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Oh, that you persevere to the end. So what's going on in that person's heart? They've deceived themselves. I met somebody, and I know we need to go. I met somebody at the funeral yesterday at the memorial, an older gentleman, and he, he was touched and moved by our service and, and appreciated that. And I asked him, when did you come to faith in Christ? As near as I can remember, he said, well, I've been in church my whole life. I've taught Sunday school. I've done this and this and this, and I got a resume this long in about 30 seconds. And I asked, but when did you come to faith in Christ? And he said, well, I just told you. That's self-deception. That's self-deception. So uh, what do you do with that? You can't watch out for everyone else, but you can watch your own heart and you can evaluate your own heart and um, cling to the Lord, cling to scripture. Um, 
This is why it's important to suffer as a Christian because that's the test. Here it is. Here's the answer. I've been trying to get to it, Rebecca. Sorry. 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7 says that suffering is precious to us because it tests our faith. Because when you don't fall away, you rejoice that you're saved. Suffering drives non-Christians away from the faith. Suffering confirms your faith. <clears throat> I know some of you, I've, I've, asked, I've, I've gotten this question a lot. Will I be courageous enough to die for my faith if called to? We, did, we thought that was a theoretical question until the last couple years, right? Will I be courageous enough? If you're in Christ, absolutely you will be. You'll have courage. You'll, you'll be walking to the state going, I feel invincible. Or you'll be like Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley being burned at the stake together. And, and, and Nicholas Ridley, they gave green wood and he was burning at a slow rate. He was screaming in agony. And Latimer turns around and says, play the man. We'll light a torch such that England will see the gospel worldwide. But one thing that Ridley didn't do is say, stop the flames. So you'll have, you'll, you'll have perseverance like you, don't, you can't believe. I promise. And the Lord has promised that. So suffering is our test. 1 Peter 6, 1, 6 and 7. It's a glorious thing. Hey, I've been going through all this stuff. And I haven't turned away from God once. I, I haven't questioned him. I'm running to him. I'm clinging to him all the more. I'm like Job in Job 13, 15. Though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. So I'm fine with God killing me. Just not fine with Satan doing it. But guess what? Satan doesn't have the power to. When I die, it will be at God's hands. And I'm fine with that. So uh, this is a very personal topic for us, isn't it? So I wish we had more time. But let's pray and then we'll, we'll move on. Thank you, Father, for this little discussion. Too short a time. Lord, again, we pray for those in our midst who don't know Christ. The ones that scare us the most, Lord, are the ones that, have, that believe and that, are, that believe they're, they're saved and are self-deceived. They've grown up in the church or they, they continue fooling themselves. It must be the work of your Spirit, Lord. And, and I, I long, Lord, to baptize a member of our church to baptize somebody who acknowledges I am not saved. So Lord, I pray that we would have that ministry here and I thank you for all the believers here, Lord. Oh, give them confidence in your persevering power that no one will snatch us out of the hands of our Savior and no one will snatch us out of the hands of our Father. And we thank you, Lord, for this time. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Sorry I kept you a little late. Thank you for your listening ears. I really appreciate it.